Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we give thanks today, Lord, that you are an unchanging God. Father, that your character, your nature is not moved or affected by the things of this earth. Even, Father, by our actions, Lord, you remain who you are, unchanged. And, Father, we find great hope in that because when you promise to save, you will not go back on your word. When you promise to redeem, you will redeem your people. Father, that our confidence and our hope is placed in a God who does not change. And that means that when you say, when we cry out to Christ in faith, we are yours forever. That you are the immortal, invisible, unchanging God. And Father, as we have sung, Lord, seasons come and go, we flourish and wither like leaves on a tree. Yet none of this changes you. And we who are so insignificant from the perspective of who you are, you condescend to save. We who by our very creation are insignificant in comparison to you, Father, yet we rebel against you, and you still condescend to save. And so, Father, we rejoice that we are united through faith in Christ to you, the unchanging God. Father, now as we look at your unchanging word, may we seek to be molded and shaped and conformed more into the image of your beloved Son. Father, take your word, apply it, work in our hearts today. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to where are we going now? Second Peter. Took us a year to get through First Peter. How long is it going to take us to get through Second Peter? Well, we'll find out. Um, I did want to mention, so we did this when we started the First Peter um, series. We handed out these scripture journals. And so what these have is on one side, um, there is the text of Scripture, and then on the other side, there is a notepad where you can take notes. And so I know we handed these out with First Peter. I know we maybe had some newer people here, and if you would like to pick up one of these, they are available for you on the back table. So as we go through Second Peter, you can, uh, you can keep notes this way as well. So they're available on the back table there. Um, and these, these, I'm really glad that uh, Crossway, who... Um, publishes the English Standard Version of the Bible. They've created these, and they're great tools as we study through God's Word. So please, if, if maybe everything we went through in First Peter, you filled up the pages in Second Peter. So if that's the case, grab another one. We've got plenty of them back there. So I wanted to mention that as well. This morning, we're going to be considering or really introducing the book of Second Peter and looking at how Second Peter calls us to recognize that there is power for pilgrims in the knowledge of, particularly of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ. Now, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different 
uh, in that we're going to talk about some stuff you don't usually typically hear talked about, but I think Second Peter is a good book, book for us to discuss some things regarding what we call the canon and why, really why we're studying Second Peter. So we're going to spend some time doing that. And then we're going to read the entire book of Second Peter today. So, and if you look, it's a short book, so that's okay. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul calls on the elders to do is to devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture. And of course, we do that here, but I thought it would be good for us to just read together the entire book, and then we'll take the, the arduous task of going verse by verse and line by line as we begin next week. Now, why should we study Second Peter? Um, I think that's, that's a, a good question for us to answer. And most likely, if someone were to come to you and ask you, why should you study Second Peter? You would say, because it's in the Bible, all right? So that's a, that's a good reason, Rye. But today, particularly in the day and age in which we live, the fact that a book is in the Bible is not necessarily considered a reason to study it. Or, more accurately, people will argue, well, maybe that book should not be in the Bible at all. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time discussing why we're going to study 2 Peter. Now, just some, some, some sort of ancillaries about this book. Uh, the letter claims to be written by the Apostle Peter. We see that in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what we'll find is that as we look at some things this, this morning, many scholars are going to dispute that fact about Second Peter, uh, but we'll go through and talk about and show how their arguments ultimately are not convincing. When was this book written? Well, if the letter that Peter is referencing in Second Peter as his first letter is referring to First Peter, then we know that the date has to be after First Peter was written, obviously. Um, we, we think that it was written because Peter also mentions that his death is imminent. So scholars have put the death of or the martyrdom of Peter around 65, between 60 and 68 A.D., and this seems to fit where 2 Peter was written likely sometime between 65 and 68 A.D. So we're talking 30, 40 years after Christ uh, rose from the dead. Now, where was Peter when he was writing this book? And it, based upon what we see in church tradition, that Peter was executed in Rome, uh, even based upon some of the things that were said in 1 Peter that seemed to point to the fact that he at least had a connection with the church that was called at Babylon in 1 Peter, but we know that that's a reference to Rome. Um, it's likely that Peter would have written this book um, in Rome. Um, the recipients, again, if the letter that Peter refers to as the first letter is 1 Peter and not some secondary letter that he's written, um, then the recipients would be the same, and those would be the churches of Asia Minor. And so even if we wanted to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, we can see the specific towns that he references there, the cities in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I'm sorry, those aren't cities, those are areas of Asia Minor. And so those are likely the same places that he is writing to. Now, our question that we're going to really discuss this morning is, well, is this book something that we should be studying? And this is where it brings us to the discussion of what we call canon. Now, if you've 
gone through our systematic theology classes that we had here, we discussed at some length the concept of canonicity. And I, I would reference you, if you'd like to learn about that, you can go to bbcpittsburgh.com theology, and there's some extensive uh, uh, sessions there on the topic of canon. Why, so why, why am I bringing this up here? Like, isn't, isn't this sort of the type of discussion like, all right, the pastor learns about this stuff in his study, and that's good knowledge for him to have, but isn't it just good enough that the pastor tells me Second Peter's in the Bible, so that's good enough? Well, have any of you heard of a movie called The Da Vinci Code? Anyone heard of that movie? All right, or the book written by a guy named Dan Brown? Um, the Da Vinci Code, and, and particularly a uh, popular New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman have done a lot to cast dispersions on the books we have in our New Testament. And in particular, 2 Peter is an easy target. In fact, it is one of the, the modern consensus of these books that, we, that particularly we hold regarding 2 Peter is that it was not written in 65 to 68 AD, but rather it was written somewhere between the end of the second century into the third century. Now, that's problematic because if it's claiming to be from Peter, but it was written that long ago, Peter would have to be hundreds of years old, and we know that that wasn't the case. Um, they, there's essentially this idea that a community, or particularly a forger, wrote this letter and said that he was writing as Peter, and he did that to lean credence to what he was saying, but essentially saying that this wasn't written at the time of the apostles. So what the modern scholar actually seeks to do regarding most of Scripture is they look at Scripture and they do not view it as the inspired and errant words of the Holy Spirit, but rather they view it primarily as the words of men. And when they look at it as the words of men, they dispute the fact that it was written by the apostles. They dispute the fact that it was written when it was written. And so you're looking at me like, uh, and I I understand this is some sort of thick, heavy stuff. But why are we discussing it? Because you might come across somebody who's watched the Da Vinci Code or read the book. And as you're saying, oh, what, you know, what are you studying at your church? Oh, we're studying Second Peter. And there's certainly the possibility that they would say, well, you know, that book's really not even supposed to be in the Bible in the first place. Now, here's, here's the thing that I think is important for us to recognize. If a book is not the Word of God, then should it be proclaimed from this pulpit? No. So it is a very important question. Is Second Peter part of what we call the canon or the authoritative group of scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit? And I would answer to that question a resounding yes, it is. But why? And so what we're going to do is we are going to apply what's called the self-authenticating model of determining the canon on Second Peter, and we're going to come to a conclusion that it is a book that we should read and study and look to. So, get ready. This isn't a seminary class. I'm going to try to not make it too dense for you, uh, and we'll, we'll have some fun as we go along here. So, why should we study Second Peter? And my first, my first answer to you would be not because it's in the table of contents, but rather, first of all, because God has preserved it for us. God has preserved it for us. This is what we call providential exposure. 
We know that the apostles wrote other letters in the New Testament. They're referenced that we don't have today. There's likely the possibility or the the reality that um, uh, Paul wrote a third letter to the church at Corinth. We don't have that letter. We know that the apostles sent other letters. Uh, In the book of Acts, we see this happening regarding the Jerusalem Council and how there's letters being sent out from the apostles bearing their authority as apostles to the churches around. And so we know that this was a commonplace practice, and yet we only have the 27 books that we have in the New Testament. So the the question is, and maybe you've thought about this, that these other books that are referenced in the New Testament— well, wouldn't it be interesting to read those? Shouldn't, shouldn't they be something we're looking to? And the answer is, is not God in control of all things? And so if we don't have the book today, then we don't need it. God has decided that it is not necessary for us to have those books. But the books that we do have, they are preserved for us by God's providence. You know, it is, it is amazing to see the way in which God chose to preserve His Word for us today. Again, these were, these were letters, all right? When you get mail today, even if you get letters from people that, that you cherish, let's say it's a birthday card or something like that, and you may keep it for a while, but eventually what ends up happening to those letters or those cards? Where do they finally end up? In the garbage, all right? And, and we communicate in a way today that's so so easily accessible, especially today now, like nobody really writes letters or types them on typewriters, as that should be happening. People send emails. And what do you do with an email? I mean, you read it and then you you trash it, or if you're like me, you just leave it in your inbox, and I have 250,000 emails in my my email box. But notice the way God created his word to be preserved these were letters written by apostles and you know what they would do they would write them and then they would send them with somebody in fact in first peter we see that that it is sylvanus or who is taking this letter to these churches that he writes to in first peter and he's the one who is taking this to them and what what would happen is he would come and he would read the letter to the congregation And they knew that it was the Word of God because it was coming from the Apostle. It was coming from Peter. And so guess what they would do? They would copy it. And they would take that letter and they'd copy it down meticulously listening. In fact, as the letter was read, you know what some people would be doing in the congregation on that first Sunday? They would be copying it at that point. And those copies would then spread throughout the region that they were given so that today... Now we're 2,000 years removed from that. You realize that of all the ancient literature that exists out there, when it comes to manuscripts written, copies of those written in the original tongue, that the New Testament is by far, by and away, by multiples of hundreds more than any other work of Greek literature. I mean, it is staggering. There are over... 5,000 Greek manuscripts in existence today. That is a testament to God preserving His Word. And so we have that Word today here for us. It's preserved. But it's not just that 2 Peter is preserved for us as a letter, but it is preserved for us as Scripture. The church recognized, and we'll talk about the role that the church had in this, but the church recognized very early on 
that what God was writing through Peter in 2 Peter was to be regarded not just as a letter. There were ancient works that were helpful, commentaries and devotional works that were done that were very, very popular, but they recognized that there was something different about the Word of God. And so today, we have 2 Peter. So why study it? Well, we have it preserved for us as Scripture. Secondly, why should we study 2 Peter? Well, the divine authorship is evident. We refer to this as the divine qualities of 2 Peter. Yes, Peter is the writer of this letter, but as we know, all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of who? God. It's God-breathed so that the true author of Scripture is not the human author, but it is ultimately our Lord and Savior Himself. What we're going to find as we read 2 Peter is there will be evidence, clear evidence of God's authorship in this book. It's going to show us that it aligns with all the teachings of the New Testament. It's going to have upon it a clear indication that shows us it's different than other things. Listen, one of my favorite authors that I, that I read um, is John Piper. John Piper writes great books. I love to read what he writes. But here, John Piper does not write Scripture. There's something different. And we will see that as we walk through this. There's beauty and majesty in what Peter says. It stands clearly on the doctrine of the gospel and the teachings of the apostles. Nothing in this letter is going to turn back the totality of what God has been teaching. In fact, it stands firmly in that flow of literature and that flow of doctrine that we find there. So, the divine authorship is evident. But then thirdly, we see that we should study 2 Peter because Peter, the apostle, wrote it. It has a clear indication that it is written by an apostle, that there are apostolic origins to this letter. Now, why is that important? Well, the apostles were sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Despite what some people would claim, there are no apostles today. To be an apostle, you had to have a vision of the risen Christ. The last apostle being the apostle Paul, who Christ revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. Peter, of course, was an apostle. In fact, Peter was the one who proclaimed amazing things. And in fact, as we're going to see uh, towards the end of our discussion here this morning, Peter particularly was tasked with feeding God's sheep feeding his lambs, even after he had betrayed the Lord. We'll look at that in just a second. So, 2 Peter, as we see in verse 1, is claimed to be written by Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It is through the apostles that God has chosen to give his word. We see that very clearly here. Now, what we find when we come to 2 Peter, and this is something that's just obvious from reading it, and it's been obvious for centuries, is that 2 Peter is very different than 1 Peter. The style is different. The subject matter is different. And in fact, it also has a lot of similarities with the book of Jude. 
so much so that it almost seems like they're copying from each other. And so what many scholars today have concluded about 2 Peter, they have called it a pseudonymous work. Now, that's the big, uh, you know, $20,000 word. And essentially what it means is that it's a forgery, that somebody wrote the book of 2 Peter, but it wasn't Peter. They just stuck his name onto it. In fact, one prominent commentator who writes about the authorship of 2 Peter says this, Scarcely anyone nowadays doubts that 2 Peter is pseudonymous. In other words, that Peter did not write it. And he's speaking of the vast majority of scholars, quote-unquote, in the world today. So, if so, many, so much dispersion and so much consternation is cast on 2 Peter, I think it's important that we discuss why people view it that way and then respond to their objections. In fact, some of the great theologians of yesteryear also looked on 2 Peter with some suspicion. Men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they both would comment and remark on some of the difficulties in accepting this work. In fact, when we look at the councils of the church history, we find that 2 Peter is included in what was called the disputed books. It was ones that the church looked at and said, oh, we're not sure if this really is Scripture. So what are we to make of this? And, and maybe this is new information for you today. Maybe you're thinking, well, I just thought that the, the table of contents was dropped into the first century, and then that, that was the Bible. I thought that was it. What are we to make of this? I mean, should this shake at the very foundations our confidence in the Word of God? The answer is no. And we will find very clear reasons why 2 Peter is indeed written by the Apostle Peter. So, I know that my sermons the last two weeks have been extra long, so I, I know you're going to take this with a grain of salt. Let me be brief, <laughs> all right? Um, let's talk about some of these things. So, there are a lot of differences between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. The style is different. The content matter is different. However, I think those, some of those differences are exaggerated and the similarities are often overlooked. In fact, the differences and similarities between the two letters are on par with other New Testament letters that we know are written by the same author. For instance, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Hardly anybody doubts that 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. It's very well established. But you know what you find with 2 Corinthians in comparison with 1 Corinthians? Different style different subject matter. And if you just think about this for a second, like, why would that be? Well, in 1 Peter, Peter's purpose in writing is completely different than his purpose in writing in 2 Peter. And so that is a clear, easy explanation for why we see these differences. But what about the similarities we see between 2 Peter and Jude? Well, I would just argue, first of all, that because the, the argument is if 2 Peter is quoting Jude, then we know that Jude was one of the later epistles and was written after Peter died. So if 2 Peter is quoting Jude, then it would have to be written by a forger because, sec, because Peter would have been dead by the time that he was quote, the quoted material was written there. But here's the thing. You don't find footnotes in the manuscripts regarding who they're quoting, like we see in, in books today. And it is just as equally feasible 
that Jude is quoting who? Second Peter. Peter, in, in particular, in Second Peter. That's also the possibility. And here's the other thing, all right? Peter and Jude wrote these letters, but who is the ultimate author? God. Is it out of the realm of possibility that God would say the same thing to different groups? No. How many Gospels are there? Four. They say the same thing, but they have different purposes in, which, in, in ways in which they do that. So, again, this idea that Peter is this pseudonymous source, this, this writer that wrote it as a forgery, when you really inspect and look at all the details and intricacies, it really doesn't pass muster. If, if you'd like more information on that, I have a journal article that's like 22 pages long that I can give you, you know, for light reading when you're, you know, you're not doing anything, when you're break at work or whatever. Um, so what can we conclude from all these details? Well, I think often the simplest explanation is the best, isn't it? The simplest explanation is the, often the best. Listen, the letter claims to be written at the very beginning by Simeon Peter. And it's also important to note it's written as Simeon Peter, not what we typically think of as what? Simon Peter. That's actually a further indication that it is written by the Apostle Peter. Because if a forger was going to copy Peter, he wouldn't use an obscure name for Peter. He would have used Simon Peter. And this actually is a reference back to the book of Acts. And it's, a, it's used once in the book of Acts to refer to Peter. It's preserved for us as being written by Peter. It shares the marks of divine authorship that was exclusive to the apostles. It's written by Peter, and as such, it makes it a significant letter for us to study today. And I think this is important because of what Christ's charge to Peter was at the end of the book of John. You know that one of my favorite passages of Scripture, fireside meal with Jesus. In fact, Peter is the, the subject of this. The, the chapter begins after Christ has risen from the dead. This glorious hope has been made. And Peter, sort of down in the dumps, probably because of what he's done in denying the Lord, he tells the other disciples, I go fishing. He goes right back to the way of life he had before he knew the Lord Jesus. And Jesus had called him to be not a fisher of fish, but a fisher of what? Men. But he jumps in a boat and heads out on the Sea of Galilee, and they toil all day and all night, and there's nothing. And then Jesus appears to them on the shoreline, and he calls out, have you caught anything? And they said no. He's like, well, cast your net over one more time on the other side. And the Lord of all creation directs so many fish into that net that when they pull it back up, it starts to break. And then it's learned that it's the Lord Jesus, and Peter jumps off the boat and swims. The rest of the disciples get there, and Christ has laid out a meal for them. There's a campfire going. There's some fish cooking on the campfire. They're going to have breakfast with Jesus. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? And Christ encourages them and talks to them, and then they finish breakfast. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, and notice what he commands Peter to do. Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, What? Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know how many things? Everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. If you're here this morning and you have faith in Christ alone for your salvation, you know what you are? A sheep. A sheep to the great good shepherd. And that great shepherd turned to Peter, a man who failed his Savior three times. And the third time did it in disgusting manner. And by his grace, he restores him and says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You know what second Peter is? It's Peter doing that. You know, we said it would be wonderful to be there at that, at that beach, but you know, we get to enjoy the fruits of Christ's command to Peter today as we look at this letter. What a glorious hope we have in this book. We should study 2 Peter because Peter, in obedience to Christ's command, wrote this letter for us. Fourthly, why should we study 2 Peter? Well, believers in history have viewed it as God's Word. This is what we refer to as corporate reception. So how did the body of Christ, the church, respond to this letter? Now, again, remember, these letters circulated. They were copied. They would be taken, and they would be read, and people would keep copying them, and they'd be circulating all over the first century church. And so... Here's the thing. What did, what did God give to His church to help guide them into truth? The Holy Spirit. So while how the early church responded to these letters is not ultimately conclusive, we're actually going to see what that is in the last one, nonetheless, it does pay some, we should pay some attention to it because believers throughout the history of the church we assume if they're genuine believers, they're also filled with the Holy Spirit who's guiding them into truth. So what they did and how they responded should be taken into consideration. Now, if we talk to the, the scholars, the experts today, they will point us to some things that would say Peter wasn't really considered Scripture very early on. And we have to admit that there's a mixed bag, even among some of the earliest believers. But there's also some very convincing evidence from church history that 2 Peter was regarded as Scripture. The first 
is that we look at some very early significant writers in church history. So there's a guy named Clement of Alexandria. Anyone want to guess what his favorite city was? Alexandria, all right? Not Virginia, <laughs> all right? Alexandria. He lived about 150 to 200, to 150 AD to 215 AD. So this is end of the second century, beginning of the third. And he writes, he wrote a commentary on Second Peter. So for, for him to have been developing such a robust theology based off of the book, the book would have had to have been written significantly earlier, at least in the middle of the first century. So this contention that it was, or I'm sorry, in the middle of the second century. So this contention that it is a late second century or even mid-third century book is sort of taken out by that particular aspect. But then there's another guy named Irenaeus, and I, I just have recently learned that that's the correct way to pronounce his name. If you look at it, you would, you would, you would pronounce it Irenaeus, but that's not correct. It's Irenaeus. At least that's what I've been told. I don't know. Who knows? Anyways, what am I saying? So he lived from 130 to 200 AD, and he quotes 2 Peter 3.8. So now we have something that's moving even a little bit closer. Then there's this guy, Justin Martyr, who he received that name because he was one of the most prominent martyrs of the church. Justin Martyr alludes to 2 Peter 2.1. Now, what's striking about all three of these individuals is the way they treat 2 Peter. They don't treat it as another book. They treat it as Scripture. In fact, what you find is their writings, you know what they're doing? They're arguing against heresy. And so what do they appeal to to make that argument clear against heresy? They have to appeal to an authority. And what is that authority? The Word of God. And so when they're appealing to 2 Peter to refute the arguments of heretics, what does that tell you about how they view 2 Peter? They view it as the Word of God. But even more so, there's a letter, a very early letter written in 95 to 97 A.D. So now we're in the first century. And that letter, 1 Clement, references 2 Peter in several different places. So if, if 1 Clement is quoting 2 Peter at the end of the first century, then the book would have need to have been written before the end of the first century, Right? which puts us, we, we put the date here, 65 to 68 A.D., it's now conceivable that this was actually a very early book that was written. I think it's also important to note here that if Second Peter was indeed a forgery written by somebody claiming to be Peter, then it also would not have been accepted by the later councils. In fact, the record's very clear in the first century that if a letter was known to be a forgery, in other words, this is the epistle of Barnabas, but we know that Barnabas didn't write it, you know what the early church did with it? They rejected it. They said this is not God's word because it wasn't written by an apostle. And so, 2 Peter endured several centuries of scrutiny by the church and the church was known to reject books that were forgeries. And it finally, when we come to the councils, these councils rejected those works that they knew to be 
for forgeries, including other works that were claimed to be written by Peter. There's a very famous early um, work called the Gospel of Peter. You know why it was rejected? Because they knew it wasn't written by Peter. But what do we see with 2 Peter? What happens? It is accepted as God's Word. So what we find is that the inclusion of 2 Peter is found in some of the most important compilations of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that we find today. In other words, it had, accept, it had, it had gained an acceptance as the Word of God very early on. Now, what about, if, if we're talking about how believers through history have viewed it as God's Word, what about believers today who say that Second Peter is not God's Word? Shouldn't we at least take into consideration what they're saying. Why should we disregard their assessment? What makes the early believers' testimony about 2 Peter better than the modern-day scholar? Well, the sad reality of modern-day scholarship is that those who reject the authenticity of 2 Peter, unfortunately and sadly, often also reject essential truths of the Christian faith, such as the historicity of Jesus, the inspiration of the Bible, the miracles that are found in Scripture. Even the idea of the virgin birth is often rejected by these scholars who also reject Second Peter. Now again, only an individual in the Lord know their standing before Him, but if you reject such essential aspects of the Christian faith, then there's a real question as to whether or not you're truly a genuine Christian. And so their arguments against the inclusion of 2 Peter are perhaps not guided by the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say they are not guided by the Holy Spirit. Today, the consensus among evangelical scholars, those who ascribe to the fundamentals of the faith, they don't have any problem with accepting 2 Peter as God's word. They've studied it. In fact, many of the arguments that they bring up are done in such a way that it clearly demonstrates that 2 Peter should be included as God's word. And so as we look at the, the testimony of Scripture throughout history, there is strong evidence that God's people, led by His Holy Spirit, have responded to 2 Peter as God's word. You say, well, what about those guys that, you know I, know, I know, Pastor, you like, like Martin Luther and Calvin? I mean, I did mention that they wrestled with these issues as well. Well, yeah, they wrestled with them, but you know what their final conclusion was? It's the Word of God. Luther commented on Second Peter as God's Word. Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of God's Word, except for Revelation. And I'll give him, cre I'll give him slack for that, all right? Revelation's a tough book. And guess what? He commented on 2 Peter because he ultimately viewed it as God's Word. So, why study 2 Peter? God's preserved it for us. It's evident that God is the ultimate author. Peter, the apostle, wrote it. We have strong evidence to that degree. How has the church throughout history responded to it? They viewed it as God's Word. But all of those things, while very helpful, are not the ultimate reason why we should study Second Peter. The ultimate reason why we should study Second Peter is because God speaks through it. 
God speaks through it. Now, please understand what I'm saying by that. I'm not saying that if you sense that God is speaking through any work, then it's Scripture. God defines how He speaks to us today. And how does He speak to us today? Through His Word, through Scripture. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith understood that believers were going to wrestle with how do we know that Scripture is Scripture? I mean, do we just have faith in the table of contents? Is that what we should do? And this is what they wrote. They wrote about everything we talked about, the the providential exposure, the divine authorship, the apostolic uh, authority, that how the church has, has responded to it throughout history. But ultimately, they come to this conclusion. They say, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our That ultimately, we know that God's Word is God's Word because the Spirit who's been given to us speaks through it. It does something to us. It doesn't just be a a piece of work that we read and say, oh, that was nice, but it actually changes us. Listen, there are lots of books I've read throughout my life. One of my favorite books, book series growing up were the Chronicles of Narnia. I, when I used to find, I'd go and play in my grandparents' house, and, and they didn't have a, a wardrobe, but they had a closet. And so it was the lion, the witch, and the closet for me. And I would go in there, and I'd pretend that I was, you know, in with these coats and everything and, and taken to this magical land. I mean, it was, it was something that was amazing, but it has never impacted my life like the Word of God has. And 2 Peter has that effect. Ultimately, we're going to study this book because God speaks through this book. And by God's grace, you will hear His voice and heed what He says. That's the only confidence ultimately we can have in studying any book of Scripture. Because apart from the work of the Spirit through His Word, It's just words on a page. But praise God, He has given us His Spirit to illuminate and show us the truth of His Word. In fact, if you look towards the end of 2 Peter, Peter recounts something that I think is important for us to recognize about this book. He recounts his experience on the mountain of transfiguration. And if you look particularly at verse 16. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He says, When He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son. I mean, it would have been amazing to stand on the mountain and hear the audible voice of God confirm the sonship of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that is, that is evidence you can take to the bank, right? But verse 18, we ourselves 
heard this voice, voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. It's almost like Peter is just remembering. It's like he was there yesterday. And then look at what he points to in verse 19. We have the prophetic word, what? More fully confirmed. What? Peter, you've seen the glory of Christ. You have heard God's voice confirm that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And you tell me that what's more fully confirmed for me today is the word of God? Yes. And I would argue that just as Peter heard God's voice saying, this is my son, as we work our way through 2 Peter, we will hear God's voice, not audibly, but internally through his spirit, tell us, this is my word. Which Peter tells us that we would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen, do we live in a world of dark days? Where do we find hope in these dark days? The Word of God. So, why are we going to study Second Peter? There's lots of reasons, but ultimately it is God's eternal word. So what is the theme of 2 Peter? Well, we see it in verses 1 through 3. Peter writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, Boy, that blows me away, and we'll talk about that next week. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. What is Peter's main thing? That there is power through the knowledge of Christ. Why is Second Peter so different from First Peter? First Peter, he says, listen, you don't belong in this world and it's going to be rough. You're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to be difficult. And he calls us to a number of different things. He gives hope and speaks of holiness, sanctification, submission, suffering, transformation, and community in the church in First Peter. And it's like, whoa. And if you come to the end of First Peter and you're like, how in the world am I going to do this? Then he comes to you in Second Peter and he says, listen, God has given you His divine power through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so that becomes the focus of Second Peter. Listen, how can you walk this world as a pilgrim? Because God gives you power the more you know Jesus. And so, next week, we'll begin diving in. But let's pick up at verse 4. 
And it's going to take us about seven minutes. I did this in my study this week. I wanted to see how long it was going to take. And let's read the whole book together. Let's read God's Word. This is the Word of God. Treasure it. Love it. Grow by it. Good verse 4. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, that I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Drop down to verse 20. We already read that section. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. 
Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as they wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up by your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, uh, Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I praise the Lord for that comment. Which... The ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in grace and what? Knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. May we take it and seek to study it and grow by it. Thank You, Father, that You provide power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Second Peter, which is your word. May it speak to us as we begin to study it, molding and shaping us, encouraging us, calling us to live for you in all things. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. We're not going to have a closing song. I want you to go with the word of God on your hearts and think and meditate and consider it. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.